Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of the Odo Mentor Podcast. We have made it to 2021, and I'm excited to bring you more episodes providing mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All of the opinions and views expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests. Let's get to it. This is season three, episode five, LGBTQ plus identity in otolaryngology. My guest today is Dr. Scott Scheidt. He completed medical school at Baylor College of Medicine, residency at the University of Wisconsin, and a facial plastic and reconstructive surgery fellowship in New York at the Williams Center for Facial Plastic Surgery. He also has an MBA. Scott is an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin and also serves as the diversity and inclusion advocate for the Department of Surgery there. Welcome to the show, Scott. Good morning. Thank you. So tell me about your career path. How did you choose otolaryngology and go from there into fellowship and such? Yeah, so way back when, I loved science, and I spent a summer in college working in a laboratory, a virology laboratory in the University of Texas. And boy, that was a lonely summer, working with pipettes and, and whatnot. And the <laughs> summer afterwards, I spent the summer at a internship that was designed for undergraduate students in Houston, where everything has the, the title Tabaki. So it was the Tabaki Summer Surgery Program. And uh, I didn't know at that point I wanted to be a surgeon, but it happened to have been a, a surgical experience. And I just fell in love with medicine. So fast forwarding to later in medical school, I, I wouldn't know that I wanted to be a surgeon for many years until I stumbled across otolaryngology at the VA hospital down in Houston. And it was, you know, veteran hospitals are special in that there's a lot of, a lot more residents, a lot more time for teaching. So my experience was working with chief level residents who had a relationship with long standing patients flexible laryngoscopy in the clinic. I thought was so neat of, of diagnostic and therapeutic interventions. It was really the people, the, the chief resident, the junior resident watching the teaching. It was something special. And, and of course, I'd be remiss not to say that it's the anatomy. I think we all share that, that love from first year anatomy class. But yeah, it was, it was the people who, who really inspired my love of otolaryngology. And I think that continues today with the people that we surround ourselves with or just happen to be really nice, wonderful people who I consider friends and, and colleagues. I moved to the University of Wisconsin to pursue my residency training. And a few years later, fell in love with facial plastic surgery, kind of marrying the, the reconstructive and uh, aesthetic and functional procedures together through the same incisions and giving patients with functional deficits the same attention that a cosmetic patient uh, wants or deserves. And there you go. Here I am today. But it all started with a, a summer in college watching cardiac surgery, and, and who knew that then I'd be where I am today. Yeah, nice. So our show today is about LGBTQ plus identity in otolaryngology. And before we dive into that, I want to make it clear that your perspective does not represent all otolaryngologists or all people who identify as LGBTQ within our field that this is your personal experience and, and opinion. But on that note, how do you identify? So 
I am a cisgender male and my sexual orientation, uh, uh, I'm homosexual. So I'm, I'm a gay man. And God, that, that's weird to just say those words out loud. I just really say like, oh, I'm married to a guy. This is much more, <laughs> much easier. You know, I don't have a problem with the label. It's just weird to say out loud. But uh, no, I'm, I'm in a same-sex relationship. And, and I appreciate what you said, because I think the, the story or the path of becoming an otolaryngologist is, is a common thread that goes through all of our lives, uh, a bond that we all share. But, but yes, indeed, the, the things that affect my identity are, are certainly are unique and, and may speak to some in some regards, but, but should not speak for, for, for many others. Yeah. And then tell me about your home life. So you're married to a guy, like you said, and <laughs> it sounds like you guys also adopted a, a son recently. Well, we actually went through the surrogacy process. And so uh, my husband is also a surgeon. Adam's a pediatric surgeon, so he trained in general surgery. So uh, I'd like to think that our training is rigorous, but uh, watching five years plus two in the lab plus two years of fellowship, he, he beat me by, by a couple of years. Just meaning to say that we, we waited until he was, we were both completely done with our residency fellowship training. And we went through the surrogacy process and have a, a beautiful 10-month-old at home right now which is very interesting. I'm in my seventh, uh, going on my eighth year of practice. And most other colleagues who are in that, in those shoes, they don't have kids this young. And so kind of working my way through the rising ranks from assistant to associate professor, but managing a life with a 10 month old married to a surgeon is, is tiring, but yet just really amazing. Just wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I completely get that. I'm married to a surgeon and have two boys. Uh, they are older than your boys, but it's, yeah, it's not easy to navigate all of that <laughs> at the same time. Um, and you always feel a little bit short, you know, like you're not completely winning in all of the spheres either, which is yeah. tough. So tell me about adoption, surrogacy, the language. I, I admit my, I don't know uh, what language to use. How, how does that all work? Okay, so first of all, it, it's a really common question. Like the Delta guy at the jet bridge on my last flight, I had my son and he was like, was he a doctor, surrogate, or tell, tell us about it. I was like, I think I need to go on the plane here, but he's right, like, I yeah, don't yeah. know, like <laughs> everyone wants to know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we, we've been in that world for a couple of years, but, you know, we, we were fortunate to have people who, who kind of paved the way and gave us the, the knowledge. So we desire to, you know, our, our dream was to have children that were genetically related to us. And so uh, we went through the process of creating embryos. And so in most states, the way that this is done is there is an egg donor. In our case, it was an anonymous egg donor that we did not know. And we use some of my husband's sperm and some of my sperm that created embryos. No, they, they do not get mixed together, uh, all like swirled up, which is a very common question. It's actually a very highly regulated FDA process um, because, you know, you're creating embryos that will be implanted. So I think there's just like this, oh, and, you know, we understand how implants get regulated so highly. So an anonymous egg donor, eggs were extracted from her and created embryos of my husband's DNA and my DNA. And those were grown in a laboratory and then sampled frozen and sampled and genetically tested for karyotype. We also could find out XX or XY. And so then we had viable embryos that were in the freezer and we had a surrogate who lived really close to us who offered to carry the embryo. And that is, that's the most common way that surrogacy is performed. There is another form of surrogacy where it is the egg is 
the person who's carrying the child. However, that is illegal in most states because there's an idea that there could be coercion. And so that's just the kind of legal background. So so Jacob, my son does not have a mom. He has an egg donor and he has a surrogate who carried him. Yeah, that's all the that's the terminology in a nutshell, but it's great. And so we if we have more more children, which is what something we'd like to do, that we have frozen embryos in some deep freeze locker somewhere that is, uh, you know, um, so the children will all be genetically related. And then, you know, they'll have a mixture of, of some kids will be Adam's DNA and some kids will be my, my DNA. So yeah, right. that's, that's this process of surrogacy in a nutshell. Yeah. I mean, what a fascinating time we were, you know, yeah. you don't have to rely on adoption. You can rely right. On. I'm actually surprised the, the surrogacy agency that we used had far more heterosexual couples where, where mom could not carry the child. And so they were able to create, you know, embryos, you know, for any permutation of, of his sperm and not her egg or her or both her egg and, and sperm of the parents, but could, she couldn't carry it. And so surrogacy is just, it's a really magical world where magic and not a, not a, not a weird way, but magic in just this beautiful way that people are giving their bodies for, for nine plus months for those parents same-sex and opposite sex who who can't who can't carry so uh, it's a neat world to, to have entered for sure did you ever have an experience of feeling discouraged from pursuing your career goals whether otolaryngology or facial plastic reconstructive surgery related to your identity that's a that's a great question and and again i think we'll just jump back to your introduction because this is my own experience so when i wrote I'll just take you back for a brief second to when to college when I wrote my admissions essay for Texas medical schools there there was a shared I forget the term but it was the it was the shared application that went out to all the Texas schools and then you could do an essay that was individualized for each program at that time and so when I eventually I, I matriculated at Baylor College of Medicine in my essay I outed myself as a gay man and I talked about being a part of the LGBTQ community and it was it was that essay that allowed me to come out of medical school and and be out. It was in you know uh, I was in my mid twenties and I just come out to my family a few years prior, and I had a notion in my mind from maybe from growing up in Texas, maybe just from being in the southern states of keeping my cards close to my chest. So when I applied for otolaryngology residency, I did not bring it up. And in fact, I moved to, to Madison, Wisconsin, which is known to be a very progressive city. And, and certainly I would say my, my colleagues are all 100% um, welcoming and supportive of, of people of all identities. But I didn't share that I was gay for my first two years. Well, at, at least my first year, I think I started telling people in the second year. So I think my identity as a cis white man, I can turn on and off of what I share. You know, I don't have my, all my identities on the outside. Are, are the, the majority class of my tall white guy. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say to answer your question, I wouldn't say that there was anything that otolaryngology or, or facial plastics per se made me do, but I chose not to, to divulge, especially moving to a new part of the country and, and entering a new field. I also had a little bit of fear of what it would be like to want to excel in a very difficult field, uh, hard to get into otolaryngology. And then what would that mean if I wanted to be, pursue a fellowship? And I really wanted to feel my way around what life would be like with my attendings for the first few years, not to 
somehow box me in and say, well, you know, you can't be an otologist because the otology attending doesn't like, you know, people that are not LGBTQ, something like that, which is silly to think back now. But but that was the way I chose. So I, I have the, the privilege to be able to hide that minority status. I will say that when I applied for fellowships, I did tell every potential fellowship mentor that I was in a same-sex marriage and we'd be living apart. And it was interesting hearing how people answered that question. That was, it was very telling of who, you know, just watching people's faces who, you know, didn't miss a beat and asked questions and what's his name and what does he do? And other people are like, oh, you know, places that I didn't end up going to, we'll just say that. But, so more um, the, more the hesitancy kind of answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there was one person who I, I said, you know, I, I'm here to work really hard. I'm here to, to be the best fellow possible, but I am in, in a relationship. I'm, I'm, you know, engaged. I was engaged at him at the time. Um, I don't expect to see him very much, but you know, like every, we're hoping like every six weeks, one of us can travel to, to another place. And the answer I got was, well, you know, I think the, the person said SHIT rolls downhill. So if you are, um, if you're going out of town and there's a problem and I'm not available, then you're just going to have to stay here and take care of it and not to him. I don't know if what, I don't really know what that meant, but I didn't really want to be a part of that, um, regardless of, of, you know, if it had to do with being in a same-sex marriage or, or maybe just didn't want to be with part of that person. But anyway, a little humor just to say, I think I have the privilege to be able to, to show people my LGBTQ status and, and not and turn it on and off when I want, which is the word privilege, which I think is really comes to mind because a lot of people don't have that. Yeah. So, and, and I relate to that too, because I'm white presenting Latina, right? So I don't yeah, wear it yeah. on the outside. So yeah. And, and sometimes people say things that they wouldn't say if I were brown <laughs> in front of me. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Going back to when you finally opened up after you were in residency for a year or two, was that a good experience? I mean, were people welcoming there? Yeah. I, I paused just to think if there was any negative feeling. And I think just a few people were a little shocked, like, like what? Really? Oh, okay. Like, great. All right. Sounds good. You know, just kind of like that, that first second, you know, the brain, the brain is processing for a moment, but no, I, and, and in fact, I think that I can look back at the experience now and, and just be really proud of my colleagues at the University of Wisconsin and the mentorship that they showed me, the warmth and compassion, because I had in my head a little bit of a fear, um, which I mentioned, I think was just, you know, from, from my circumstances growing up in, in the South and in the Southern states in Texas. But no, I, I think that it was a warm, welcoming environment. And I've actually never encountered anyone in the field of otolaryngology that has personally made me feel uncomfortable. I mean, there's, there's certainly some off-putting comments that, that I've, I've witnessed, but I can't say that anyone who's my colleague has, at least, at least my memory, maybe, maybe I don't remember them because they're not my friends anymore. I chose not to hang around with them, but I feel very, very fortunate to have such a positive experience. What about with patients? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And and in fact, a lot of medical students, if like once a year I, I sit on a panel, a diversity panel um, for the first year medical students, and that's a really common question, I think, as a first year medical student matriculates and they want to figure out how to show their pride of, of their identity, what to tell and not to tell. And, and so the answer that I've told our medical students is I tell people when it's relevant. So for my transgender patients, I share that I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. I think it, I think I, I tell them a little bit of details about 
about Adam and, and how we work at UW and how we, we chose to work at the University of Wisconsin because how we feel about the institution and the way that they, they care for LGBTQ people and their employees. And so I bring up personal information because I think it helps my relationship building with the patient, with that, with that physician-patient um, bond, especially when we're about to talk about some difficult issues like gender dysphoria. But then quite honestly, I never bring it up with anyone else. I don't think, you know, I mean, obviously there's, there's people I tell because, you know, you take care of a patient for five years and they're going to say like, you know, how's your son? How's your husband? They're going to know, you know, they know us. So otherwise, you know, if I'm doing a rhinoplasty consult, my personal life doesn't really have any bearing. So I really just don't ever have the, the need or the want to bring it up. And if someone finds some information on the internet, then, you know, I also, most of my entire practice is elective. So if someone doesn't want to come to me and they want to go to see someone else, then, then, then so be it. But that's my long-winded answer of, I say it when I need it. And otherwise someone doesn't want to come. They just don't, they won't come to me. Yeah. So I know you're really involved. You've been really involved in the Academy. I know you have a passion for diversity issues. So how has that evolved? Yeah, well, I just told you kind of where I am now taking care of transgender, gender nonconforming patients. And that has that's probably the culmination of, of a lot of years of work in advocacy. I started out as a medical student getting involved in organized medicine, specifically in the American Medical Association and Texas Medical Association. And through that, actually found a network of other LGBTQ-identified medical students and physicians. And there was a group of, of very active people concerned with diversity in the American Medical Association. And over years, we became friends and started working on projects. And some of that work was on gender access and coverage, specifically the, the lack of insurance coverage. So I think it was, a, it was a long road of just being involved in you know, what many would have considered just part of what we do is patient care advocacy, whether it's you know, for underserved patients or for all of the things that we, that we care about very much in our patients. The road, personally for me, just led to patient care of this patient population, which I, I find to be just wonderful. And it didn't happen overnight. It just took a lot of years of, of identifying problems and gaps in providers out there. Yeah, and so to answer your question, I think the, the colleagues and friends that we make in organized medicine and now specifically in the field of otolaryngology translate to a whole group of us who care about this either as members of the community or patient care providers of LGBTQ people or just allies to either. And that, that common drive, maybe it all starts with advocacy. Maybe we all have just been advocates our whole life. And now we get to just hang out and work within the field of otolaryngology, how to advance that, that work. So I don't know. It, it all kind of comes full circle that we just keep finding people that are like us, that are passionate, um, whether members of the, the group or, or allyship. It's just, it's fun. It's, it's a great group of, of people that I, we get to call friends. Yeah. So what do you think advocacy for LGBTQ looks like? How can your colleagues who may not identify as LGBTQ, how can they be an ally? I think the first thing that we've just come back to a few times, at least I have in my mind, is my own personal story. I felt very comfortable in my skin and I got to share my identity when I wanted to. And I had colleagues that were very supportive. And so I think the first thing we need to do is remember there's a whole lot of LGBTQ identified otolaryngologists or physicians for that matter 
who may not feel supported, whether that's in their home life, their family, their workplace. And maybe what's a little uncomfortable is maybe they don't feel comfortable and welcome in the Academy of Otolaryngology at our meetings or at, at committees. So, you know, through my own lens, I felt comfortable, but I don't know if that's true for others. And you hear someone says, well, you know, I don't know if I can be comfortable. And, and you wonder, like, what can I do to make those people more comfortable? And so the things that we do maybe behind a closed door in a committee meeting are wonderful, but maybe it's creating some more, maybe some web website changes so that people who are underrepresented minority members or LGBTQ members see more people like them on our website. Or maybe there's portions of our website that are devoted to what does LGBTQ care look like for the otolaryngologist or programming, or do we have gender neutral bathrooms at meetings? And all these things are not new, but it's, it's that allyship that what can we do to make sure that those people who might not be like Scott, who, who feels comfortable, you know, for every one of me, how many of there are not like me who didn't feel comfortable? And, and you know, just to, to echo your comment, I think, you know, you mentioned, you know, your, your own identity of, of white passing um, of your skin color. I wonder, you know, I don't know, I guess that we can ask that for any diverse, you know, me member of minority class diversity of what can we do for our colleagues who, who might not feel as comfortable um, to make them welcome in otolaryngology? That, that I think is our, our job right now. And it's for the improvement of our recruitment of wonderful, talented, diverse medical students to enter our field and be our colleagues. When you chose your fellowship, did you choose it based on the ability to learn transgender care techniques? No, that was not even on my radar. That's a great question. Um, I chose my fellowship because I, I studied with Ed Williams in Albany, New York. I thought I thought Dr. Williams was not only an incredible person, but just an incredible mentor for the skills to become an outstanding academic facial plastic surgeon. So, it, you know, he embodied what I what I saw as a wonderful mentor for dedicating his life to patient care, but also teaching. And he had academic affiliations and wrote textbooks and, and spoke at meetings. So yeah, I, you know, I think we all feel that, that sense when we're finishing our training, like, ah, I haven't learned like every procedure out there. If I don't learn it now, I won't know it. And, and I think that's really quite true for, for my own experience of, of gender surgery, which I didn't learn it in, in fellowship. It was, it was through colleagues, actually colleagues I knew, I know from the Academy of Otolaryngology who, you know, said, you know, we know almost all those skills. It's just putting them together, you know, a frontal cranioplasty type three frontal sinus setback is an osteoplastic flap or frontal sinus exposure. There's a little bit more, you know, refinement to it to, to feminize the skull, but you know, the, the plain surgical skill is, based on principles that we already know of nerve identification and safety in planes, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I, I just happened to found a, an awesome mentor, but you know, to the listeners who are younger in, in residency training, maybe, you know, just remember that there's going to be some innovations and changes that'll, that'll come. And it's, it was scary to think about that. Like, ah, I'm not going to learn everything in training, but you know, <laughs> Yeah, but I think that happens to everyone, you know. Oh, oh, definitely. Yeah, like it's, we're all. Well, if I'm the one who felt that, hopefully you felt that too. Yeah, I mean for sure. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, there were things that I just didn't spend a lot of time on, you know, that that have evolved. I mean, even sleep surgery has evolved so much oh, in the last yeah. 
10 years since I've been out, you know? So those are the things that you kind of learn on the job in, in some ways, um, having the underlying techniques and principles to rely on. So, yeah. Did you, did you spend time with any of those colleagues, um, before you kind of, uh, built your transgender care practice or did you really just kind of talk with them and learn about the nuances that way? A little bit of both. I didn't do any kind of formal, formal training, but, um, you know, the first time I was exposed to a forehead reduction was a cisgender woman that I, I observed a case a very early on in my practice. And it was a, a cisgender woman who just had a frontal bossing, which is, a, you know, a, a masculine facial structure. And so just watching that procedure, you know, having, having these little tidbits of, of ex- exposure and experience, you know, watching, you know, laryngology, I think is an easy example because we spent so much time as otolaryngologists understanding the anatomy of the thyroid cartilage and the relationship with the cords adapting some of the things that that we had watched as learners so often and plus it's really nice having colleagues to be able to in in everything we do i mean i imagine sleep is probably the same thing but having colleagues out there who are all adapting and and striving for excellence you know being able to talk to other people what about this let's try this oh this is going to make us more successful because right at the end end of the day we just we we want to give great patient care and and yeah plus Well, and that's kind of been one of the big downsides of not having in-person meetings with the pandemic. Oh, yeah. You you can't like see your buddy and say, oh, by the way, I had this weird case. Can you, you know, tell me what you think about this? Um, It's harder to do that. So agreed. So as far as mentorship, it sounds like you've had both LGBTQ mentors and and non-LGBTQ mentors. Do you feel like there's a big difference? And do you feel like there's a kind of need for mentors that self-identify in a similar way to you? That, that's a great question. I, I probably think back to my medical school years when I was involved in the American Medical Association and I found the group of physicians and that was, you know, within the American Medical Association, of course, has medical students, residents, fellows, young faculty, you know, and then, you know, uh, there's a there's a senior section. I mean, it is all age groups. And so uh, the life cycle of a, of a physician, being part of an organization where you go to a meeting twice a year and you're in a room for a few hours for the social aspects, some educational content, and then maybe some policy work. You know, you do that twice a year for year after year with people and you feel really comfortable and you can really, you know, roll up your sleeves and talk about this is the policy that needs to change for transgender access in the military is our new one, you know, for in the last couple of years or, you know, all the things it was gay marriage a couple of years, you know, back when medical school for me. So transgender coverage and access, for example. So I felt, you know, I haven't really thought about this too much, but to answer your question, I think I felt probably the most comfortable in my skin in a room of people that were shared the similar identity. And plus have, being a part of that organization was neat because you had that whole life cycle of the physician continuum from students to young to older so I, I would wonder what that would look like as an otolaryngologist if that networking exists a little bit more to be in a room, maybe every year at our academy meeting, you know, whether it's at the meeting or at a bar for a, a you know, happy hour, some appetizers. I liked when we, for the past few years, we've had the diversity mixer. For the listener who doesn't know, it's just, it's a diversity in any sense of the word. And it, it, it's very much inclusive of allies. It happens at one evening during the academy meeting and we all just go out. I just wonder if our younger or, 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 or maybe members who, who might not be younger, but people who 
need that, who want to feel that extra little bit of comfort. Um, I wonder if that in-person really helps because there is something about that informal mentorship that could lead to a formal mentorship, but just that informality of hanging out with other people with your similar identity or people that you feel comfortable because they maybe don't share your identity, but they're allies to your identity and having that embraced and be cemented in your brain that feeling comfortable at otolaryngology meetings, you know, what does that do for your, for your long-term love of the, the field and the, of the organization? Yeah. I mean, that support is so important and it helps on the wellness side and on the burnout side. If you could tell straight people in our specialty something they need to know about being LGBTQ in our specialty, what would you say? Ah, you know, it's something that you and I were talking about before this podcast. I get, and I think we both, we, we know that terminology for patients who do not, who do not identify as cisgender in that people who do not have the same gender as their sex assigned at birth, I think that the terminology can throw people for a loop and there's a, a fear of, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to mess up. But at some point, you can't let the, the terminology is hard line get in the way of going and doing the work and learning the terminology and talking to your transgender patients who might not be seeing you for transgender related care. Maybe they have a parotid mass or maybe they're the, you know, they're the parent of a child who's coming in for tubes or, or all the other things that we treat. And so I think that those of us who like myself did not ever grow up understanding what gender was because I was cisgender and I had no reason to know the terminology of gender nonconforming and non-binary and the newer words like trans feminine that just didn't exist, frankly, before a few years ago. I mean, I, every year there's new words I learned, but you know, I'm just, I make mistakes. I talk to patients, I, I mess up and I say, you know, I apologize from the bottom of my heart. And then I think, Oh, Scott, don't do that again. So I'd say, it's okay to tell your friends and your allies, I don't know how to use the right words for gender, you know, for gender identity, but at some point you got to go do the work. There's courses that, you know, you and I have been on panels and we've talked about these, or there's just lots of, lots of resources out there. So, so you're probably not alone if you think that the vocabulary is difficult. Yeah. And I think, it's okay to ask if you're in that situation and you're not sure what the vocabulary is. I think it's yeah. fair to ask, you know, and say, Hey, I, I just don't know what I should say here. Right. But at some point, you know, yeah. there's a lot of resources on how to, how to, what terminology means. And so at some point we, you know, if, if you want to give great competent care to all patients, including LGBT patients, you know, there's, there's great resources. So well, of course, I'll, I'll I'll help anyone out. I, you know, that's by nature. I want to I want to help people out, but I also want to call out the problem, which is if you don't know difficult terminology, you know, we we conquered a long road to become otolaryngologists, including training. I think we can we can take on the challenge of learning some difficult words that that are difficult and they change. But yeah, um, well, if you can maybe, say otolaryngology, that's you've already passed the first right. Level. Yeah, yeah. otolaryngology <laughs> had a neck surgery. You know, we can, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So if you had to do it again, would you become an otolaryngologist again? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I get to talk to you. I get to talk to, I get to see you. I mean, hopefully see you at a, a meeting soon, but I mean, the friends and the people, I, I hope that that exists in other fields, but I think that the people that we get to work with and oh my gosh, I, I love the, I love the surgical care that 
but I, I feel so privileged to be able to provide. I think it's so cool what we do. That that blending of you hide an incision because we're operating on someone's face. And you don't do that because they're paying cosmetics. You do that because of the of the trust that they've given you to to help take care of their tumor or their fracture deformity. You know, we and we want our patients to understand that we're there for them and to understand that we're there as their facial surgeon and this is an important part of their identity, their face, their expression, et cetera. Yeah, it's, it's an awesome field. The people are great, and I love the field. I would do it again without a yeah. heartbeat. And if your son, I mean, I know he's busy learning things like walking and talking at this point, but if he comes to you in you know, 20, 25 years and says, hey, Dad, I want to be an otolaryngologist, what would you tell him? Oh, my God. I pull out a video we took of him a couple of weeks ago where he's banging on my husband's ear, and he's like, pulling at his ear that he goes bangs in his nose and he puts his head in his my husband's mouth and I was like oh my god you're gonna be an otolaryngologist <laughs> so I'm gonna save that video so if that day happens in 20 years I'll be able to say see yeah you were gonna be an otolaryngologist yeah I, I hope our specialty is just as special and wonderful in 20 years and, and hopefully we'll be in in our journey and our 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 goal that we strive to be more diverse I hope we'll we'll have a lot more African-American, Latino members. I think we'll hope we'll have a lot more gender equity. Hope we'll have a place that's special and fun and important for LGBTQ members to, to be a part of. But I think we'll get there. We just, we'll keep working at that. And so hopefully my son, hope my son chooses a, a field that's as cool as ours, medicine or not. Anything you want to add? No, I, I really thank you for this opportunity. It's, it's so much fun knowing people who, share this passion for diversity. And I hope many of your listeners, no matter if they identify as any minority um, diverse class or just allyship all around, um, it's, it's, a, it's a meaningful work what we do. It's a long journey. It's, a, it's goals that we might not see within our lifetime, but it still uh, nonetheless makes it a lot of fun. And so I, I really appreciate the opportunity and, and also thank you for your friendship and the work we get to do together. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, give it five stars and leave a review. Okay, let's dance.